Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Trying to democratize Wall Street is nothing new. Online trading companies like E-Trade have been around since the 80s. In fact, I rang in Y2K at its offices, waiting to see if its system would melt down. It didn't. History repeats itself, and amateur trading has come back in a very big way. Retail investing skyrocketed during the pandemic with more than 10 million new brokerage accounts in 2020, the most ever in a year. And trading by individuals made up a bigger chunk of the action than at any time in the past decade. And the root of it all? Apps like Robinhood or Public, the latest retail trading unicorn. Public is part brokerage and part social media. That could be a genius mashup or dangerously court the worst of both worlds. I wanted public CEO Yannick Malling's take on the responsibility retail trading apps have to the individuals who are risking their savings and incomes. It's a question that seems especially important in the context of a frothy market rife with meme stocks like GME, aka GameStop. Thanks to online forums and retail investors, the struggling video game retailer saw its stock shoot up way beyond its suspected fair value, hitting a peak in January of 2021. It's come down since, but who knows what will happen next and how it will impact these newbie investors. So I asked Malling, is the ability to invest with a swipe of your finger inclusive or is it predatory, leading less experienced investors astray at the whims of Wall Street? I think investing is about long-term ownership in companies and not about a quick gamble. So I think when you're trading stocks, you know, in and out of stocks in the same day, the same week, or even the same month, you're not really doing it with a long-term view, obviously. And so you're not necessarily doing it to back the company. And so we're really focused on on the investing side of things, not really day trading. So uh, 90% of our members are longer-term investors, right? They transact a handful of times per month. And I think this this whole situation that happened on January 28th or that sort of had its climax, if you will, on January 28th. Um, you were talking about GameStop and what happened. It's a, it's, a, it's a series of retail stores, right? Yep. And it's been in the 4 to $6 range, essentially. And now it's around $160. But it jumped because traders moved in, including retail investors. Um, talk about this idea of meme stocks. What happened here? The interesting thing is, I think the term meme stocks really comes from um, just the fact that it happened on social and that the majority of people sort of piled on in the end. It's a little bit like a product lifecycle curve, right? There is actually a real thesis there for somebody underwriting GameStop at the level that it's trading at now and even beyond that, right? Because on the one hand, yes, it's a retailer during COVID. On the other hand, you've seen many examples of companies that sort of uh, are able to reinvent themselves. And I think, I think in the end, what people where people are divided is 
is GameStop Blockbuster or would they actually like, there's also an argument to be made that Blockbuster could have become Netflix, right? If they had pivoted a little bit earlier. And if only they had been Netflix, but go ahead. <laughs> that's, that's the, well, can I tell you, I covered the end of Blockbuster and the beginning of Blockbuster. They never could have become Netflix, but go ahead, go ahead. And obviously remains to be seen whether that's going to be the case. But then you had folks like Ryan Cohen kind of going in the, the Chewy founder. And I think all those pieces of the puzzle meant that people really actually believed in it. Then they started investing. So what did you think about it taking off like that? Because that's way beyond the thesis, right? It was around $17 to $480. That's way beyond this is a good stock. 100%. And this goes back to the the kind of product lifecycle curve that I talked about, where you always have early adopters, and then you have key people that kind of pile on in the end. Then they also realized there was a short uh, a massive kind of uh, oversubscribed short interest, if you will, which set up the opportunity for the the short squeeze. And then, I mean, look, I think regardless of whether people made money on that single trade, where we've been kind of focused on and what we've frankly seen, which make us incredibly hopeful for the future, is that it peaked interest as far as the markets go. And I think the markets, I mean, basically, especially with the sort of uh, millennial and, and Gen Z generation have historically had like a, a little bit of a bad rep growing up with the financial crisis and all that. GameStop, the reason I'm talking about it is because it reveals some screwy incentives facing your industry. What do you think happened there? What I do believe is that you got a sort of similar to in the wake of 08 a little bit, actually, you got to sort of re uh, reset your risk management principles maybe and like rethink how you actually do that. Because uh, we live in a world today where there just can't be clearly a massive rise and uh, a massive amount of concentrated buying power in a single security. The GameStop story has been spun as a win for the little guy. And lots of GameStop is owned by giant asset managers. A bunch of hedge funds cast in on the surge. And you know there was all kinds of behavior like that. At the same time, a lot of beginners lost money because they didn't know how to ride the wave. And they had all these sort of rich guys, a lot of them I know very well, saying, hold, 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 keep going. And of course, they got out. Um, do you see this as a victory for retail investors or do you see it as a warning story? And maybe it's something in between, but what do you, how do you look at it? Maybe it's both, right? In the end, I think I think there was a moment of celebration in there, which was not necessarily about the profit or the money. I think it was more about... Screw the man kind of thing. Well, I think where the institutions were no longer the only ones in power. Historically, that has been the case on Wall Street. Everybody kind of knows it. And I think now you're starting to see the pendulum swing in the other direction, uh, which I think is interesting. Did it swing? Really? I think a lot of people, I mean, if you if you watch CNBC and Bloomberg on a, on a daily basis, I think a lot of people are watching their words much more carefully when they talk about retail investors now, and certainly when they talk about certain forums on Reddit and whatnot. So I, I Yeah, I, they're not calling them idiots anymore, right? Exactly. Um, one of your biggest competitors, Robinhood, got a lot of heat for shutting down trades of the stock. GMA, GameStop, for the entire day. Public didn't stop trades of GameStop when Robinhood did, for example, but you eventually added a safety label to the stock, which is a little like Twitter introducing a misinformation label on a Trump tweet. Why stop there? Why didn't you stop trades? Well, so our, our clearing firm did actually take Jimmy uh, offline for a couple of hours um, in, in, in full transparency. We we disagree with our that decision ourselves, but we do work with a, a third-party clearing firm. Um, and so we worked with them very quickly to sort of get that back up. Safety levels is actually a feature that we built initially in and around the Hertz episode uh, in summer of 2020. So to explain the feature really quickly, any any security that's deemed as being risky by the SEC guidelines 
um, we kind of put a label on there and it gives you a little speed bump where you actually have to swipe through just like an additional hurdle before you place the trade. Yeah. So you have disabled trading for a certain set of hertz in summer of 2020. Yep. So what we saw at the time was pretty unprecedented in that Hertz um, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And then the stock shot up uh, like 700%, 750%, I think. Um, and a lot of people were not necessarily really understanding of like why the, the stock was going up or even knowing that Hertz was actually going bankrupt. And so we took the sort of the temporary decision to hold the buying of Hertz shares. So obviously you could still sold some if you'd already bought some, right? It's, it's a little bit no different to how some of the sort of exchanges do it when there's too much volatility um, in a single security. And then we very quickly developed the safety labels feature. We didn't have that at the time. Had we had it, we'd probably just slap that on it. But again, as we really do not want to be a place where people come in and, and get burned because a lot of people are having their first interaction with the stock market ever on public. And obviously, it's an incredibly tough balance to navigate because, you know, it's a free country. People are free to do what they want. Sure. So for, like you mentioned, it sounds a little paternalistic. If I want to sink my money, isn't it my choice or to not know things, not the choice of the brokerage? And, and things are looking up for Hertz right now, by the way. But um, talk a little bit about that, because I think there's a lot of debate when Twitter did it and Facebook didn't, for example, just either take it down or not. But what, how do you think about that idea? Because people in the stock market are like, it's my money, my choice. Well, I think the paternalistic thing would have been to take it off completely, right? And just keep it off. Um, we sort of ended up where is there something that we can design in, in, in the UI, mm-hmm. in the UX, mm-hmm. where it becomes, you know, call it five taps and a swipe and just like ways to literally present the information in context at the time of action to at least make sure that people have a greater sense of what they're really getting into. So when Robin had stopped trades of GameStop, one theory was that it had succumbed to the pressure from Citadel Securities, the market-making side hustle of Citadel Hedge Fund. That was not borne out. But now there's increased scrutiny on payment for order flows. That's a common practice in brokerages, and it's where Robinhood makes their money. Everyone always says free trades, but nothing ain't free. So explain PFOFs. Yeah. So payment for order flow or PFOF, um, I think the simplest way to explain it is it's a practice by which brokerages get compensated from routing customers' orders to be filled by market makers instead of at an exchange. And I think most people that just think about the stock market generally think about the stock exchange. And so they maybe just assume that all the orders go there to be executed directly. That historically has has not really been the case for the last decade or two. They've been going to market makers like Citadel, like Virtue and others. Um, we took the stance to actually start routing all orders directly to exchanges Mm -hmm. and sort of get out of payment for order flow. And we did that because we think that it it sets you up with, it it kind of misaligns your incentives versus your customers as a brokerage, right? And so- Because the customers could actually get a worse deal, presumably. Well, I think as a company, you're incentivized to have your users trade a lot and I think historically you've seen that the best way for people to, for most people at least, to invest is not to trade a lot. And like that is sort of a lot of the ethos that we're building public around, really like sound investing. Um, meaning please don't use our service, right, essentially. Meaning not allowing day trading, not offering margin credit, which is the ability to trade on a loan, which also means that you can lose more than your initial deposit, right? Meaning not offering options trading, which is a fairly complex instrument that where you're betting on 
not just direction, but direction within a certain period of time, which just makes it much more risky relative to taking a long position on a company where you're just bidding on direction and you can sell it at any point in time. And I think uh, on options trading, you make five to 10 times uh, more per user, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an incentive. It's not unlike, say, social media companies where some people think they don't take hate off the platform is because it's good for engagement, that it keeps people going. Yeah, a little, a little bit like how you want to keep going with engagement. Um, I think where we came out on this is like, look, the risk of companies overly reliant on on payment for flow as a revenue stream is that it impacts all the other decisions you make, mm-hmm. right? So if you then think, how do I maximize my revenue from payment for auto flow, you will your product roadmap naturally starts to incorporate things like giving people margin credit so they can sort of boost their trades or use their trades, if you will, right? So you make more money per trade, right? Giving people options trading because that's more lucrative on a payment of order flow basis than, than just uh, buying of, of physical securities. And at the end of the day, like I said, we're really more beholden to our customers mm-hmm. versus sort of third-party market makers. And tipping is is then what we kind of rolled out. And this is giving you like, here's a dollar for doing that trade for me, thanks, kind of thing. Exactly, which is completely optional, of course, as sort of Im- Im- implicitly or implied in the word tipping. But, but yeah, what we like about the model is we we then capitalize on the goodwill of the community. And um, obviously, there is a cost to actually trade today. It's very low, but it's still there. And so we did want it to find other ways of offsetting that cost of clearing those trades. Again, it's a little bit like we do believe that the future is going toward sort of a more transparent market structure right now. There's like historically in the industry, retail participation was 10% of volume. And that grew to, I think, 20% in 2020. Now it's arguably at 30 or 40%, some people are even saying. And that actually means that some of the market structures in and around the core market are starting to be really outdated. And that becomes kind of troubling um, at, a, at a core level. Right. All right. Let's talk about responsibilities and the business model a little bit more um, about democratizing access, this idea of what we're just talking about, rewards. Um, The flip side is enabling risky decisions, which can have fatal consequences financially or literally. Last summer, uh, which I've written about, a student at the University of Nebraska, Alex Kearns, committed suicide after he mistakenly thought he had a negative $730,000 balance on Robinhood. Um, How do you stop these tragedies from happening? Yeah. What what happened with Alex is obviously horrible. I think First off, it depends on what products you're offering. There's a big, big difference between just offering the ability to buy stock in a company, plain and simple, and then margin trading, which is the ability to take out a loan, which you invest, or then options trading, right? And I think in the two latter scenarios, your account can end up going massively negative. So you're being very diplomatic. You know, Robinhood enabled options trading and is, is, is gamified it rather a lot for someone like Alex, who wasn't very experienced. I've talked to his family and he just, he didn't know a lot about it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of aspects. Like I said, on public, your account can't go negative because we don't offer those products, right? So the way we think about it is, is at maximum, people can lose all the money that, that they put in. Right, that they brought to the casino. Exactly. And well, even with that... There is a conundrum around learning by doing, right? On the one hand, it's the most efficient way to learn. I think that's been historically kind of proven. It's a forcing function for financial literacy. On the others, you typically make mistakes in the beginning if you jump in at the deep end of the pool. And in the world of of trading, you know, and financial markets, those can be extremely costly. Right. So one investor told me it's like giving a Ferrari to a kid without a driver's license. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Should there be a driver's test for retail investors? Should they have to? 
Um, the way we looked at this problem is trying to solve it in two fundamentally different ways. What's the cost to actually get going and start learning? And so historically in the markets, you've had to buy one full share of stock in a company as a minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, which means a smaller retail investor couldn't even afford to buy into higher quality companies like Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway, et cetera. And so the result being that they've been left to either uh, borrow money to actually afford those companies or buy penny stocks for the most part. So that's that's kind of what we, that's why we invented fractional share in investing to allow people to really get started with much, much less. And it was kind of crazy to us because you see it in the, in the crypto world, right? Crypto is born on the internet. Not just crypto, but everything's getting fractionalized. Real estate, everything. Exactly. I think when the cost is much lower, you know, you invest 50 bucks and you lose that money. That's obviously much less um, dramatic than, than losing five digits. I, I want you to, you're again being diplomatic. What would, would Robinhood should have done? Not had it at all or given Alex Kearns more education? I mean, I'm sure also if you ask them, they would say that they wish that they could have done both. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Yannick Malling after the break. Ninety percent of startups fail. Just ten out of every one hundred last. Mercury exists to close that gap with banking engineered for the startup journey. To offer a product crafted to help you scale with safety and stability. To go beyond banking and provide access to the foremost investors, operators, and tools, so more startups become success stories. Join over one hundred thousand companies banking with Mercury at Mercury.com. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust. Members FDIC. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think, is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So I want to talk a bit about the social media aspect of public. One of your main features is that you can see what other users invest in. Um, you said the community isn't about influencing, though. What do you mean by that? Because people do tend to look up towards people and social media is about influence, like finfluencers. I think that's the word people use, finfluencers. <laughs> finfluencers. I actually never, oh, never there you used go. that term, there honestly. Um, I think you can break it down into a couple of different things. So we have people on the app that are real celebrities with millions of followers. This includes celebrities like Tony Hawk and Will Smith. Then there's another group of people, which is a lot larger, and call it like financial content creators. And you could sort of see this as more being the middle class of the creator economy. And 
you know, those are people that tend to be just very, very deep in a specific industry, in a specific company. They read all the filings, they follow everything very, very closely. And so they just have a more in-depth look into things than, than most people. And so I think these financial content creators, they sort of serve as a vehicle typically within a specific kind of sector or trend mm -hmm. of just consuming all that information and relaying it to other investors in ways that they can sort of more understand because all of that content written in the public markets is kind of written for the institutional crowd, not really for people that um, sort of have a much lower degree of financial literacy. So you have elements of a social media company like Twitter or Facebook. You also have elements of responsibility in terms of content moderation. What types of policies do you have around potentially misleading or incorrect information being shared on the platform Talk about the difficulties of doing this. A lot of the Wall Street bets, they're very anonymous. You don't know who they are. I keep yeah. imagining one of those names is, is like a well-known hedge fund investor that's lurking around saying things. So I think the core problem, you kind of touched on it, is anonymity. And we are a full-stack brokerage platform, but we're also a social network. And so we have the special feature that no one on the app are actually anonymous. So people in order to engage in social activities, actually have to go through full identity verification. And what that does is it dramatically lifts the bar as far as kind of people's behavior, because we've actually validated, like we have your address, your social security number, et cetera. Um, and that ends up creating a very different kind of culture than what you might find on on, on Reddit or, or other kind of communities. Talk about the constant moderation, though, because there can, still can be misleading or look at Donald Trump spent his whole career on Twitter lying, essentially. <laughs> so what how do you deal with that misleading information from actual people? Yeah, we have a couple of tools. Obviously, we have a, a pretty uh, a pretty sizable content moderation and 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 customer service team that kind of overlook all that stuff. Additionally, we actually have preemptive words that you cannot say. Give me a word, like what? Uh, you can say you can say pump and dump, right? Uh, you can say the N word. You can say the F word, um, and so. A lot of that is actually um, sort of from a financial kind of perspective, something that, that really just ensures that people cannot post those kinds of things. And others is just like the kind of vibe we want to see in the community, honestly. And then you have bots that continuously kind of crawl everything that's being posted, runs it obviously through ML um, and, and, and kind of AI services to identify what's being said and, and have like internal sort of triggers that pop up where we can see, okay, this is a potentially trade to look uh, th th This is supposed to look into um, for X, Y, and Z reason. Mm -hmm. All right. So, but what about your duties of taking things down? Is that you think you're aggressive in this? Would you? What would you say? I, we actually, truthfully, haven't had to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that comes back to the bar being set incredibly high when nobody's anonymous. Um, you're pretty small. You just hit one million users. You can't do this on an artisanal basis going forward. Well, I think you can't put posts that are aggressive in using certain words or the composition of certain words so that they suggest that people should actually be buying kind of a stock, right? Because that's kind of the, the pump information that you kind of see on there. And so those are the kind of features that we can invest very heavily in that I don't know if Reddit or Twitter would ever, because it's a very specific use case and they end up covering a lot of different things. And so that's one of the things that we kind of see as a, as an advantage, frankly, as far as keeping a clean, nice kind of community where people feel uh, vulnerable enough also that they can actually talk about investing. 
How do you think about your responsibility as a curator? Because public features shortlist of companies split into themes, stay at home, women in charge theme, the SPAC pack. What checks are responsible to make sure you're not driving markets or profiting off these lists? Yeah, so um, each of those lists come with their own set of disclosures, actually. So uh, we don't put penny stocks in there, right, which are companies that trade for a couple of bucks price per share, because then you're filtering the list to be mostly high quality companies, right? And so the, the disclosures there are obviously incredibly important. Um, in the case of safety labels, we actually just reference the SEC guidelines. Mm-hmm. So those are not things that we're setting. We're just kind of presenting the information that already exists in a, in a very different way. And so that's that's actually how I think about it. Like when you're at the front end of those things, you're able to bring forth some of that information in in ways that that, that the regulators actually can't. Uh, one of the things that's also a problem is rumors, obviously. Bitcoin and Ether saw huge sell-offs recently because of rumors that the Treasury Department was going to crack down on money laundering through digital assets. So are you worried of being exploited as a forum for market manipulation where rumors could carry a lot of weight? Not really, no, because I, I, I see it very differently. So I think the whole thing about like rumors and you know the Wall Street and insider trading, all that stuff, right? Like the Michael Douglas film, et cetera, I think... You know, that was 30 years ago. I think today, the much bigger problem that people have, to your point, is actually there's so much information out there that you kind of want to make sense of it all. Um, Although, honestly, the old tricks work just fine. By the way, Gordon Gecko would do just fine in this market. You know, the dynamic is playing out where uh, people are trading market tips on TikTok and Instagram. There's even speculation that big hedge funds are being are hiring influencers to try to bolster their positions in the market. I mean, I think they still can play those games, Correct. At a market sort of macro level, um, yeah, they totally can. I was more a little bit yeah. referring to, I think, if everyone was ver- was verified um, on TikTok and whatnot, and, and all that sort of became out of the open, and it was therefore in the f- uh, purview of FINRA and things of that nature, I think it'd be very different. And so that's actually, again, like how where we see the, the, the benefit of being a full-stack social network and brokerage because you put everything sort of under one mm-hmm. roof. Doesn't mean you're not going to be affected by them, though, right? It doesn't, but it means you can connect the dots a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so we have that power. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that we can build around that. Right. All right. So will you start uh, labeling rumors as that? Do you imagine doing that? Uh, to be honest, I think the community does a pretty good job doing that on their own. So That's very optimistic of you. I think it comes back to the, the the culture of the community that you're building. I think on the one hand, yeah, I realize it sounds a little fluffy, but the fluffy stuff tends to be the most powerful stuff when it actually reaches um, a certain scale. So uh, stocks aren't the only thing that people are investing in right now. Non-fungible tokens or NFTs, which I've had done some shows on, which are digital assets whose ownership is verified by the blockchain and become really popular. Um, what do you think of all these alternative assets? Um, and you've hinted that crypto features are coming to public soon. Talk about what that is, what that means, how you look at these cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think they've been through a... Uh a pretty, a pretty big sort of evolution. You kind of had the crypto winter, I think they call it, right? After it hit Bitcoin hit 20K and then it went down and now it's sort of come come roaring back for a number of reasons. I was around when it was 10, but go ahead, keep going. But truth be told, I think as opposed to back then, mm-hmm. uh, when it was just seen as this like crazy idea, I think now it's kind of seen as part of the sort of modern portfolio. And so we're adding just a few coins uh, just to uh, basically for people that want to have it as, 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 as kind of part of their portfolio. So you're essentially doing what Coinbase is doing, right? You, do you think that is going to be a feature of all these banks? I do. I think Coinbase is kind of screwed in that regard. I mean, you saw Venmo adding it, PayPal, I think. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are going to be adding it. 
Adding it. Will, will users be able to trade Dogecoin? TBD. T- oh, Honestly. that's not a no. TBD. T- so right now, the ones you're going to feature are what? What are you going to let people hold? We're starting with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. obviously, and then mm-hmm. and then either and then and, and then I think we're working our way down the ladder. Do you have any Dogecoin? I don't know. Should I buy some? That I cannot tell you, Kara. That would be financial advice. Yeah, I think the way people are starting to see it more and more is as an instrument in your portfolio that potentially works as a hedge against some wider market securities like the S and P five hundred. Yeah, and things of that nature. And um, and I think. I think that's the notion that a lot of people are coming around to. Sure. That's my, that's my hunch. What about uh, Peter Thiel's notion that it's going to attack the dollar, that it's a, it's a Chinese plot to kill the dollar? Well, I, I mean, I do think it's attacking the dollar. I don't think that's a sort of a, I think everybody would agree to that. I think um, the real question is how much China has to do with it. Oh, he just likes to throw stuff out to bother everyone and we all are just chewing all over it. That's what he does. But I think that the last time you saw any kind of thing happen in the currency world was actually with the with the formation of the euro, yep. right? Where you had Deutsche Mark going to euro and whatnot, and that had massive kind of consequences. And I think you did that in order to have a single currency that could stand up to the dollar a little bit, right? Maybe Dogecoin. Who knows? Who's to say? <laughs> That's what uh, stonks. I'm just doing. I'm just doing an Elon Musk impression. What did you think of that? What do you think of when you have single people being able to move markets that way and yell stonks or whatever the hell he's doing? I know him pretty well, and I think he's just playing games, but part of it's quite serious. When one person has the abilities to move people so quickly, it's a fan-based investing model in a weird way. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's new because the way that the content gets distributed is very different, right? And all these platforms are not really connected, and there there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination going on. And I think... Because the way I think it used to work is more secretly around Bloomberg terminals and whatnot, right? With the chat and like things yeah. could still kind of go viral in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the one hand, I, I I don't know if the problem is actually new, like at, at, at the root level. I think the, the way that the manifestation of the problem is a little bit different than, than, than how um, we've seen it historically. Um, and so it's very much TBD what, what ends up happening there. I think he's he's had his... Hands slapped a couple of times, so yeah. uh, maybe that happens again. What is your perspective on government regulation and retail investing? What, what do you think the SEC will do, and how do you look at it if running your business? Because they're obviously going to get involved uh, much more heavily in all these areas. Yeah, but they are already very heavily involved, right? Um, they exist to protect the retail investor. So I think you don't protect the retail investor by shutting them out. But I also think there's a lot to the argument that a retail investor wanting to invest is really just buying stock in companies. It's not borrowing money to do it. It's not doing options trading, et cetera. So I can imagine that. I think those would probably be some of the the kind of reference points um, and then they'll work from there. Uh, yeah, I think they will move into market manipulation a little more heavily in my opinion, but we'll see. So let's finish up talking about your business model. How do you make money at public? What is your business? You can't be tipping. What are you, a waiter? We certainly serve. Mm-hmm. That is uh, front I'm and center of everything we do. Okay. So we have a couple of different ways we make money. PFOP was one of them. We did obviously abandon that, at least for market makers. So you additionally have cash, uh, interest on uninvested cash. Then you have securities lending, which is, you can sort of think of as essentially interest on invested cash. Mm-hmm. And then you have tipping. And so those those are the free core um, revenue streams for us right now. I mean, to your point, we're only, we're not even actually live for two years. So we will 
roll out more revenue initiatives for sure, mm -hmm. right? What about selling data or, or the, for, for example, the social graph? Is that in your... No, that that we that we won't do. So Robinhood, now it's going public. Long-term, are you considering an IPO or a SPAC or do you hope to get acquired? I suspect you have a lot of banks sniffing around what you're doing. Yeah, the, the SPAC thing is interesting right now. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're, not, we're, not, we're not considering anything in the short term. I, 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 I can say that much, no matter how much um, SPAC people um, are out there. Um, There's a lot of SPAC people. I know. So as far as whether we're going public, not this year, probably not this year. There's some day, yeah, maybe, right? Um, is there we, pressure because Robinhood is? No, no, not really. Because? Why? I don't see why there would be. <laughs> well, more money, more ability to acquire, more ability to make trouble. I don't know. Lots of reasons. Nah, I don't know. I think it's, uh, I mean, look, I think you have comps in the public markets, but you've had that for a while. Like E-Trade was public before they were acquired, et cetera. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't see that as a as a catalyst for, for anything for us. Okay, last question. Public saw a boom during the height of COVID. So did Robinhood. So did a lot of these others. People are at home. They have nothing to do. Some of this is entertainment for people. How do you think about drop-offs and usage? Or you're not worried about engagement in that case? Not, not really, to be honest, because I think what you what you see are two kind of very different things. To my point, there's people that maybe just come in for a single hit and then they're out. We haven't really seen that, to be honest with you. And I think that has a lot to do with when you drop people into community. Um, maybe that wasn't what you came for, but that's what you stay for. And so it's a little bit different for us relative to some of the other brokerages. I think. I see. Interesting. Yannick, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Hiba Elarbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Liriel Higa, and Kristen Lin. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website, and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you as fast as a Ferrari without a driver's license, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. But before you go, we've got an event coming up for Times subscribers. I'll be debating my fellow hosts from Opinion Podcast, Jane Koston and Ezra Klein, as well as columnist Farhad Manju about the merits and dangers of cancel culture. Comedian Trevor Noah will be weighing in on the subject too. It'll be on Wednesday, May 12th, Time subscribers can RSVP at nytimes.com slash cancel culture. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.